We thank you for today. There's a lot to think about on this Sunday, the last Sunday of 2020. We've been through a lot as a church family, been through a lot as individuals and, and families. Lord, we thank you that none of this is taking you by surprise. You have remained on your throne through all of this. Your plan, your, your plan remains perfect, and you have a purpose for this season that we have gone through. I pray that as we think about 2020, it may be with, with heartache, but Lord, I pray that it would not be with resentment. I pray that we would look back on it and, and see, okay, it was, it was really hard, but I, I can see where God's hand moved. I can see where God sustained me. I can see where he gave me the peace uh, that I needed when I needed it. I can see where he sustained me uh, and my family. And Lord, I pray that we would take that and, and take that hope and take that with us into the new year. Your word remains unchanged. Your, your word remains true. Doesn't matter what time, year, culture, society, we're living in. Your, your word will always be true. Your word will always be filled with your promises. So Lord, I pray that if we walked in here today with any distractions or burdens, that you would remove those, that we may just be one with you. And as we look forward into this new year, we would see what you want us to bring into it, uh, what, what you want us to learn, what you want us to take in our hearts today, what changes need to be made, and that we would take those with us into the new year. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The invention of video surveillance, when used appropriately anyways, has become a very helpful invention for law enforcement. That guy didn't know he was going to be both on Channel 2 News and on my PowerPoint six years later. Anyway, this has become a very helpful invention for law enforcement. For, for example, if somebody robbed a store, but there were no witnesses because it was late at night, that person could still be, still be caught because their image was recorded on the store's video surveillance or uh, on a camera such as this. I think this guy is trying to steal things out of a vending machine. Uh, but he's captured on, on, on this um, video feed. With the advent of social media, the police very often get the general public involved by circulating a screenshot of the subject. Even if that person denied being the one to do it, there's still undeniable evidence that they were, in fact, the one who committed the crime. They look at you and say, well, then who's that robbing the vending machine right there? Who is that supposed to be? Similarly, Jesus tells the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3 that he is both the 100% credible witness and the 100% uh, credible stander against the Laodicean church and they won't be able to deny how they've been living is either true or even right or wrong in the first place. It's not up to them. They're not the ones to judge it. Jesus is the only one to be able to judge that. So again, not only is Jesus the judge, but he's also the witness to the breaking of his law. It's like getting caught on video surveillance, breaking into the home of a judge who's going to preside over your home invasion case. Like I mentioned last week, we're taking a bit of a break from our parable series during these holiday weeks. 
Last week, we, we looked at what Jesus' birth meant according to the beginning of John's gospel. Today, we look towards starting the new year of 2021. And we're going to look at leaving any re uh, residual complacency that we have in our lives behind in 2020. And we're going to leave any complacency behind in 2020. And we're going to pursue what God says is a life worth living in 2021. You guys with me? All right. So if you brought your Bible with you, please turn to Revelation chapter 3. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to Revelation chapter 3. Big hint, it's the last book of the Bible. Uh, just, keep, just keep flipping forward until uh, you get to chapter 3. And we're going to start in verse 14 here. Jesus is writing a series of messages uh, to uh, different churches in, in, in this general area here. And he's using the Apostle John to write these words down. And there's a specific church in a place called Laodicea. And this is the message that Jesus has for that church in Laodicea. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. That's how he introduces himself. When I've given the Greek versions of the English translated words, sometimes they look similar to an English word, and sometimes they're far from it. But this word amen in the Greek it, it, it is amen in the Greek, and it's just transliterated or adopted into the English language as is. So it's originally from the Greek language, and it's just borrowed by the English language. Same exact word. We seemingly always end our prayers with the word what? Amen, right? That's what we end our, our, our prayers with. But do we know what it actually means? Do we actually know what it means when we say, in Jesus' name, amen? Well, just as the Greek language has adopted amen from the Greek, the ancient Greek language adopted it straight from the ancient Hebrew. So it goes actually all the way back to Hebrew. Maybe you've heard along the way that amen means let it be. Maybe you've heard that before, let it be, let it be so, which is true. But we need to get to the origination of the Hebrew word amen to get the best understanding of the word. The root of the Hebrew word amen is aman, which means believe. See, that's the essence of when we say amen at the end of the prayer. You're basically saying, in Jesus' name, I believe. I believe. Everything we want to present to God can be translated, can be entrusted to the Lord Jesus Christ. Absolutely and without any doubt as the mediator and fulfillment of the new covenant. We can end that prayer in pure and wholehearted confidence to the one that we're praying that prayer to. I believe. So when we think of amen saying let it be, we are confidently leaving our joys and our heartaches and our praises and our requests in the care of Jesus because he has bought us at an impossibly high price and he lives to inter intercede for us before the Father. Hebrews 7.25 tells us, therefore he is able. He's more than able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. You want to know what Jesus is doing right now? He's interceding for you. What's funny is we were watching a, a Bible Christmas show this past week uh, with our kids, and, and I said to the kids, you know, as the, as, the, as the lame dad says, 
and what is Christmas all about, kids? <laughs> and Raina said, the one who's up there. And I said, you mean the one who's in your heart? And she said, no. I'm talking about the one who's up there. The one who's in my heart is the Holy Spirit. And I said, all right, you caught me. Good, good job, good answer. You caught me, Raina. So, so by, and that's exactly true. Jesus is before the throne of God, interceding for us every second of every day. That's where he is right now. So by Jesus opening this message to the Laodicean church, he's essentially reminding them of what they owe him. They owe him their very lives because he is the only one, according to John 14, 6, who can offer a relationship with God to them. He is their high priest. He is the mediator of the new covenant. And he can be trusted fully and wholeheartedly with their public and private thoughts and should be respected in that way. He is the one who can be trusted fully with all of their joys and their requests and their thankfulness. And, and again, he should be respected in that way. He's not just somebody they can pile all their prayer requests on and then not give him a second thought. In, in the way, the rest of the way they live their lives. This flows into and connects with the faithful and true witness that we read here, the faithful and true witness in verse 14. Jesus' reputation for faithfulness floods into the position of being the witness and the bearer of God's message to humanity. We can rely on the validity of everything Jesus told people on earth and tells us through his word. John 14, 6 through 11 tells us, Jesus told him, I am the way. I am the truth, and I am the life. When somebody tells you all roads lead to heaven, that is a bold-faced lie. That simply is not true. Because Jesus says of himself, I am the way. Single, singular. There's only one way, and it's only through Jesus. When somebody says, you have your truth, I'll have my truth. That is a bold-faced lie, because Jesus says right here, I am the truth. There is only one truth. There is only one standard of truth, and it is only found in Jesus. And because Jesus is the embodiment of the word of God, it is only found in the word of God. And Jesus is the life. There is no way to eternal life. There is no way to heaven. You can't come up with enough good things to outweigh the bad things, there's only one way to eternal life and that is Jesus, and only Jesus. No one can come to the Father except through me. You might say, well, that's pretty closed-minded of you, Pastor. Not my words. Apparently God is closed-minded because he is saying no one can come to God except through Jesus. If you had really known me, you would know who my Father is. From now on, you do know him, and you've seen him, because you're looking at me right now, Jesus says. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and we will be satisfied. And you can imagine Jesus looking at him like, did you not just hear what I just said? Jesus replied, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? That's a pointless request. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak are not my own, but the, my Father who lives in me does his work through me. 
Just believe, amen. Just believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. If you don't want to go that far, at least believe because of the work you see me do. Look at all the miracles I've been doing. That should be enough. In addition, since John 1 tells us that Jesus is the embodiment of the Word of God, we talked about this last week when we talked about John chapter 1, we can be 100% confident that everything that is in Scripture is 100% true. Somebody says there's a bunch of contradictions in the Bible. I want to say, show me. Let's look, at, let's look at them together. If you do a little bit of digging, you will see that there are no contradictions in the Bible. If you do a little bit of digging, you will see that the Bible does not lie about anything, that it's not slighting anybody. That every, you got to take everything within context. And when you do that, and when you study it, and when you dig into it a little bit, you will see that every single thing in the Word of God is 100% true. Jesus, indeed, is the faithful and true witness. This is important later on when he starts talking to the Laodiceans about what's wrong with them, because they can't now claim that they're actually right. They can't say, ah, Jesus, you're only 99% right, 99% true. We think we're the, that 1% right in how we're living. They can't make any claims to that. Lastly, Jesus adds to his salutation, the origin of the creation of God. We talked about this last week, the origin of the creation of God. Jesus is the Word. That's how John describes him in John chapter 1. In the, word, in the beginning was the Word, right? Jesus is the expression of the thoughts of God and what he had, think, what, we, what he was thinking about creation, and express those out through Jesus as the Word of God. The Greek word used here is archaic. And it means both ruler and beginning. It means has both meanings to it, ruler and beginning. If you think of a king with absolute power, what he says goes. Well, and when we think of an earthly king, no matter how selfish or not well thought out that decision may be, but what he says goes, you still have to do what he says. The law of the land, or how everything is, emanates from or begins with the king. That's why the entire nation of Israel was held accountable for how evil their king was. And they had evil king after evil king after evil king after evil king. The whole nation had to deal with the consequences of all of those evil kings when God uh, put the consequences on the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. They all had to deal with the consequences because it all begins with the king. And what he says, if the king is good and fair and cares about his people, how it is, how life is in the kingdom logically would be stable and prosperous and good and fair. But if the king is selfish or psychologically unstable, then how it is in the kingdom logically, logically would be horrible and impoverished. That's, it all starts with the, with, with the king. In the same way, how it is in this universe, created by God, is set from and begins with the king of the universe, with Christ himself, who is not created by God, but is the archetype for everything, who, who is the beginning of everything. He is the definition of love. 
He is the definition of stability. He is the definition of what is right. He is both the ruler of everything in this universe and the standard of everything in this universe. Everything begins with him as the ruler of all of it. This probably sounds a little bit familiar because we talked about that last week, as Jesus is the word. Because of this, what Jesus is about to say, especially to the church in Laodicea, he is fully authorized and credible to say. Because after all, he's the standard to which everything else and everyone else is measured against, and he's the king. So whatever he says goes. A parent might feel guilty about imposing a standard that they know they broke all the time when they were growing up. But Jesus is the standard to which everything and everyone is measured up to, and therefore he has every right to impose that standard on his children. When someone is sick or has a long-term disease, the doctor gives them a diagnosis, which is what? The in, both the analysis of the sickness and the strategy for combating it. They'll say, well, this is what we believe you have, and this is our plan moving forward uh, for how to deal with it. Revelation 3, 15 through 18, what follows, verse 14, is both Jesus' analysis of what is wrong with the Laodicean church, what the disease is that they have, and his prescription, his, 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 his plan with how to deal with it, how to overcome it. So let's look that up first in verse 15. I know your deeds. You can't pull anything past Jesus. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were something. I wish that you were either cold or hot. Obviously, he wishes they were hot, but he would even take if they were cold. Jesus starts out by saying, I know your works. The Laodicean church has the reputation on the outside for being healthy and alive. That's what they were known the Laodicean church had the reputation on the outside for being healthy and alive. But according to Jesus, when he looks at the x-ray, when he, when he looks at the inside, they are nowhere near that description on the inside. They are riddled with things that can't be seen. They're doing things. They're showing people that they exist in their community. But inwardly, there's no purpose. They're aimless. They're wayward. There's no direction. Jesus tells them, you are neither cold nor hot. Again, I wish you were either one of those. Why? <coughs> because if you were hot, you're on fire for God's kingdom. There would just be encouragement to keep, keep it up, keep going forward. If you were cold or you had absolutely no interest in Christ, such as, as being an atheist, Jesus could work some powerful incredibly powerful event in their lives to shake them up and they would turn to him. But here's the problem. Here was the Laodiceans problem. The Laodiceans believers problem was this. They simply did not care. That was their problem. That's why they were neither hot nor cold. They simply didn't care. They were complacent in their walk with God. They were apathetic. They didn't really care much. They were putting other priorities in their lives ahead of God. They cared more about other things in their lives other than God, and they put those ahead of him. They put those ahead of his church. 
and they put those ahead of his great commission to share the gospel. That was their biggest problem, complacency, apathy. They didn't care about sharing the gospel with their friends and family. They didn't care about fellowshipping with one another. They didn't care about showing their neighbors that they cared about their church. They didn't care about surrendering their sinful desires for personal righteousness. They didn't care about any of that. They cared more about their own comfort. They cared more about their own plans than they cared about being the church. Yikes. Does this strike a chord with anyone sitting here right now or watching online? We all have to ask ourselves the question as we look forward to a new year. How much of me is still Laodicean? How much of me just doesn't care? about the things of God? How much of me just doesn't care about the kingdom of God? About seeking the kingdom of God above all else. About seeking the kingdom of God in every area of my life. How much of me doesn't care? This is how Jesus feels about that way of living, verse 16. So because you are lukewarm, and you're neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You look that word up, there's a little bit stronger language connected to that. Picture having the stomach bug. That's what Jesus is getting at here. He's not just talking about, yeah, that didn't taste very good, and he spit it out. He's talking about full-blown vomiting all over the place. That's what he's talking about. That is how the Laodicean church made Jesus feel. Man, all right. This would have been especially relevant and powerful to the Laodiceans. The city of Laodicea did not have its own water supply. They either had to pipe water in from the hot springs six miles south of the city or import cold water from the surrounding mountains. And so by the time the water came from either source, what temperature was it? Lukewarm. So this would have been especially poignant for them. Either way, it was... Ugh, I don't want to drink this. Laodicea, especially in its location in the Mediterranean world, would have been hot all the time. If, there was all, if, if all there was to drink on a hot day was lukewarm water, would that be very appetizing? Would that be very desirable? No, not at all. It would probably make you feel sick. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. In the same way, the apathy and the complacency in the Laodicean church was sickening to Jesus. He wanted to spew them out of his mouth. He wanted to vomit them out of his mouth. Think of the different ways Jesus has reprimanded the different churches in Revelation, if you've read through the beginning part of Revelation. How would you feel if Jesus said that about you, that you made him sick? Man. And this is something we all deal with. If you think about it, the way we live our lives, if there is apathy, if there is complacency, if we're putting other things ahead of God and, and, and we're caring more about other things in this world, that's the same way Jesus sees us when he looks at us. Are you uncaring about bringing every area of your life in line with what pleases God? If not, if you, if you don't care, then these are not my words, but Jesus is himself you make Jesus sick. 
Now, Laodicea was an extremely prosperous city, and if Laodicea was proud of anything, it was the amount of money that they had. Look at all the amount of money we have. In fact, when an extremely devastating earthquake rocked the region in 60 AD, Laodicea was the one place. This, is, this just shows you how much pride they had in themselves. They were the one place to that refused aid money from the Roman Empire. They said, no, we can take care of ourselves. We're good. Don't worry about us. And they rebuilt their city with their own money. Their reliance upon money had apparently seeped into the church there, for Jesus refers to that in verse 17. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, and you could probably go on with that list. But the believers in Laodicea were putting their trust in their money. They were letting the amount of money they had, either enough or not enough, they were letting that rule their sense of happiness and security instead of in God's provision for them. How familiar is that to any one of us sitting here? Amount of money or maybe lack thereof being what determines is your happiness or your level of security that you feel. And you're not placing it in God's provision for you. God taking care of you. God keeping you safe. Again, how much of us is still Laodicea? Money and the cultural propulsion towards the accumulation of more and more of it distracted and blinded the believers as to what was most important. And that was their relationship with God. On the opposite side, money and the fears of not having enough of it distracted and blinded the believers as to what was most important, and that was their relationship with God. Both ends of the spectrum were both wrong. Jesus comes right out and calls them blind. He also calls them miserable and pathetic, in reality poor, and in reality without security or naked. The word for miserable in the Greek is word meaning continuous affliction that leaves a person with deep calluses. Anybody who's done a lot of manual labor, you get those deep, those deep calluses, they don't just appear out of nowhere, right? What comes first? The, the painful sores, right? And then those develop into calluses. Those pop, you get raw skin right under there, it's extremely painful, and then the calluses start. If one puts their trust in the amount of money they have or lack thereof rather than in Jesus, in reality, that actually puts more strain on someone than the other way around. You're actually causing more friction on yourself, causing more pain, causing more soreness than if you just trusted God with all of it. Trusting God with the amount of money he's given to you, since it's his anyway in reality, brings the most freedom from fear and anxiety. You say, well, I don't know how I'm going to pay this. I don't know how this is going to work out, but I know God does. And I'm going to take the freedom that comes with the peace of knowing that. The word for pathetic in the Greek is one meaning desperate and to be the most pitied. If one puts their trust in the amount of money they have or lack thereof rather than in Jesus, they are in reality desperate. Because the hope that money offers is really only empty hope. It could be gone in an instant. 
Because of that, they are pathetic. The only true and lasting hope can come from Jesus. And saying, amen, I believe. I trust in his provision. I trust in his provision over me. There is more than one word in the Greek for the word poor. There is the everyday poor. That is someone who is not rich. And then there's the one for extreme poverty, extreme destitution, meaning they have absolutely nothing in this world. Absolutely nothing. And that second one, extreme destitution, extreme poverty, is the word used here for how Laodicea is in reality. Now, if they have a lot of money physically, then what is Jesus actually referring to here? Obviously, their spirituality. The church is in reality bereft of spiritual wealth. And as Mark 8.36 says, what do you benefit? What, what good is there if you gain the entire world, but you lose your own soul in the process? Because this world is going to end. It's going to end. Your life has an expiration date on it. And then anything that will matter is what happens with your soul. That's the only thing that will matter. What, it, what good is it if you gain everything the world has to offer, but you lose your soul in the process of it? The word for blind here comes from a root word, meaning to be filled with smoke. In other words, you can't see anything because of that smoke. I can't think of any better illusion to make for what the amount of money has, one has or doesn't have and what that does to that person's judgment how that clouds that person's judgment, right? It causes people to, be, to do desperate and dumb things and chase after dumb things because all they see is the smoke. That's all they're seeing, the, amount, the money or the, or the lack thereof or the opportunity to make more. It's not that they, that they can see clearly and they've weighed choices and options and made an informed decision. This word means that everything up there that's going on, that they're thinking about, is cloudy, muddled, foggy, and it's impossible to, sink, to, to see or to think clearly. Would anyone here have the desire to be willfully blindfolded and then be made to live out the rest of your life that way? And be forced to make every decision that way? No. So why do we constantly allow ourselves to be blindfolded by how much or how little money we have? Instead, let Jesus take you by the hand and guide you to how he wants you to live and where he wants you to go and whisper in your ear, it's okay. I'm going to take care of you. Don't worry about it. I've told you time and time again in my word. Don't worry about these things. So stop it. Stop worrying about them. Amen. I believe. And trust it fully to Jesus. He will take care of you. Lastly, the Laodicean believers thought they were secure because of their financial security. But Jesus tells them that they're actually naked, exposed, vulnerable, bare, no security whatsoever. Are you clothing yourself with chasing after financial security, worrying about your lack of it? Or are you clothing yourself with the confidence of trusting the one who said you would always see that your needs are met. What you're thinking about and the way you're living your life are proof as to how you're trying to clothe yourself. So look at your life. Look at your life right now and say, what am I spending most of my time on? 
What am I focusing on? What am I putting ahead of God? What am I spending most of my time worrying about? That is what you're trying to clothe yourself with instead of clothing yourself with Jesus and clothing yourself with a peace that can only come from him. Jesus next hits the Laodicean believers in three spots that they are trusting in other than in Jesus. Verse 18. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I saw to anoint your eyes so that you may see. The first area is the most obvious one that Jesus hits them in here and that is in their gold, their fat stacks, their stacks on stacks on stacks. Jesus says, if I were you, I'd not store up my treasures here on earth where moths rust, where, where moths eat them and rust destroys them, where thieves break in and the stock market crashes and any value in anything gets lost. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. If I were you, that's what I would do. Next, Jesus refers to Laodiceans thriving trade in black wool which came from black sheep, which was one of the driving forces of their prosperity. And he says, instead of pouring your life into that, pour your life into seeking my, my, my white clothing, my redeemed clothing, my clothing of forgiveness, which is personal righteousness and living according to my standards. That's how you'll be eternally rewarded. And thirdly, Laodicea was famous for producing eye salt a cream that people would smear onto their eyelids. And he says, instead of focusing on that which will make this earthly body feel good, but does nothing for your spirit, focus on that which will open your spiritual eyes to the working of the Holy Spirit, which will in turn be good for your body. See, it's all about turning everything around, turning everything on its head, turning everything oppositely. Everything the world shouts at you and throws at you is opposite of what Jesus wants you to be thinking about and doing. Opposite. In closing his diagnosis for the disease and its treatment for the Laodicean church, Jesus says in verse 19, Those whom I love, I will reprove and discipline. <laughs> you might be sitting here and be thinking, Boy, Jesus is pretty hard on, on the Laodicean church. And he's being pretty hard on me right now. I just wanted to come to hear a good word, get encouraged, go home with a smile on my face. This is what Jesus wants you to hear. Those whom I love, I will reprove and discipline. I will tell them what they need to start working on, what they need to change. Therefore, be zealous and repent. If I'm telling you what I want you to be doing, and I'm hitting you where it hurts, and I'm telling you, you make all these changes. What does that say? It says, I love you. It says, I want you to become more and more like who I am. That says, I want you to have the peace that only I can give to you on this earth. Nothing will change with just a head nod or, or, or saying, preach it, <laughs> or, or, or a hand clap. The only way that some, something will get better is if real hard change happens. People don't like it when someone else tells them what to do. And people don't like change. 
But if your life is not the most pleasing to God that it can be, then change, always purposeful, a lot of the time painful, needs to happen. And this is the perfect time to be thinking about this. As we head into this new year, and many people are thinking about resolutions and changes, this is the perfect time to be thinking about this. To leave the complacency and the apathy and not caring behind in 2020 and to focus and seek and chase after the things God wants us to be chasing after and living our lives for in 2021. The spiritual dividends to change are crucial to that change. Jesus knows the Laodiceans need motivation to jumpstart them. So he offers them rewards for their change. Verses 20 through 21. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This last description is yet another reference to believers ruling over the earth in some way with Christ. We've talked about that in the past. Jesus wants us to clean things up. He's a dinner guest coming to spend time with us. And this is our most exciting motivation too. This is all Jesus wants above all else. He wants to have personal interaction with and the power of Almighty God to pour out upon you. That's all he wants to do. Most, if not all, of our time, though, we don't invite him to. Most, if not all, of our time, though, we don't invite him to. We would rather party with ourselves or with things that leave us feeling empty rather than partying with Jesus himself. And I, let me tell you, that is the party to be at. That is the party you want to be at. In addition, who wants to spend time with somebody who couldn't care less about being there? If you invited me to a party at your place and I showed up and I brought my Game Boy with me and I just sat in the corner by myself, sorry. A Game Boy, guys, is like a Switch today. All right. <laughs> but if I sat in the corner all by myself and you asked me how I liked the party and my response was, I looked up and I said, eh, how would you feel? Like you want to pick me up by the collar and throw me out the front door, right? Get out of here. Why are you even here? This is exactly how Jesus feels when we couldn't care less about advancing his kingdom, when we'd rather focus on making money, having fun, making our lives as comfortable as possible. That's how Jesus feels. We look up from the pleasures of this life and say, eh, I could take you or, or leave you, Jesus. When we don't want to take risks, when we would rather trust in ourselves and what we think we should spend our money on and our time on rather than what Jesus wants, when we would rather keep to ourselves than nurture relationships with both believers and unbelievers, that's how we're treating Jesus. But here we are. We're at the end of another year. This chapter is closed. 2020 is closed. Everything that happened in 2020, that is in the past. This chapter is closed. We are about to start a new year. This is exciting, so get excited. This is, we're, 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 get excited because we're on the cusp of a new year. We have so much opportunity to invite Jesus to spend more time with us.
in this new year, pouring out his wisdom on us, pouring out his strength on us, pouring out his peace upon our souls. We have so much opportunity to chase after the things God wants us to be chasing after, those things that will please him and bring us fulfillment and purpose. We have so much opportunity in the new year for the Holy Spirit to change things that have plagued us for years. You want to finally have freedom from something that's been dogging you for years and years and years? Finally get that right with Jesus. Get excited about that. Know that he's going to break those chains. Know that you're going to overcome that. Know that he's going to give you victory. And at the end of all of it, Jesus will invite us to rule with him in his messianic kingdom. All of it is a win, 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 win. Never underestimate how much impact spiritual warfare has over you. I think a lot of us have conveniently forgotten about that. Never underestimate how much spiritual warfare, how much impact that has over you right now. Complacency, apathy, being distracted, these are all common tools of the enemy of our souls. That's not purely human in origin. This is spiritual warfare. Fear and anxiety over life circumstances, especially during this time of this pandemic, are also common tools of the enemy. How much are you dealing with spiritual battles you didn't even know existed or saw in your life? As we transition from 2020 into 2021, I want you to take a look, hard look at yourself and say, are there spiritual battles going on in my life that I didn't even know existed up to this point? that I need to take special consideration of and, and cry out to God to have victory in? If you're inviting Jesus to spend time with you in your heart, who is not showing up, or who, who is now showing up, when you invite him to spend more time with you, looking around him and saying, wow, there is a lot of demonic and spiritual activity going on right now. A lot of spiritual attack going on right now. And this person doesn't even know any of it is going on because they've been blinded. They've been giving these attacks different names. Fear, apathy, chasing after earthly wealth, discontentment, inner turmoil, weakness, self-centeredness, and self-reliance. And then guess who starts going to war against those demonic attacks? Jesus himself. We have so much potential for Jesus to come and free us from so many things holding us back right now. But we have to turn away from things rooted in selfishness and self-reliance and invite him into our lives. If you've never accepted him as both the savior of your sin and the king over your life, that's an invitation to Jesus to enter into your life for the very first time. If you have, this is a call to invite Jesus to take complete control over your life and start going to battle against those things in your life that are only destroying you and the cause of the kingdom of God. We have so much opportunity as a church to impact our neighborhood and our, our town, but nothing's going to happen if we aren't relying upon the Holy Spirit to change us. If we're not relying on the spiritual power. We can reap so many more dividends of blessing for ourselves, for our church, and for our neighborhood if we live fully for God and do what he wants us to do. It's very simple. I can preach a million sermons about giving all of ourselves to God and his kingdom, 
but we will not see God use us as effectively as we can be used unless we allow the Holy Spirit of God to drive us to our knees and cry out for his help, power, change, and courage. James 5.16 tells us the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power. Never underestimate what will happen through those prayers if you are focused your entire life on what God wants you to be living for. And the, the prayers that have this great power produce wonderful results. Never underestimate how powerful, how powerful those prayers can be. So, brothers and sisters, as we leave 2020 behind and we start towards 2021, are we doing that? Are we praying constantly for God to remove our own selfishness and grow a heart filled with Christ's love and a heart focused on him and a heart focused on inviting him into our lives and spending more time with us and pouring out his power and his victory over us? Are you asking him to present you with opportunities every day to grow you in your faith, to stretch you? Might be kicking and screaming, but still to stretch you and to grow you in your faith, to share the gospel, to invite others to church and to build that church up? Are you seeking ways to pray for and with your brothers and sisters for corporate excitement, revival, and neighborhood impact. So as we look towards this new year, let us as a church and, and as individuals let go of our own personal selves, what we want, our ambitions, what we wish were ha was happening, let go of all that. Leave that back in 2020 and throw ourselves completely upon God's provision, both material and spiritual. Throw ourselves completely upon God's plan for us. Be okay with whatever that plan includes. And throw ourselves completely on God's lasting transformation of us, for ourselves, for our church, and for our community. God's power will be unleashed in our lives and in the lives of others. Chains will be broken. Fear will be replaced with peace. Fear will be replaced with courage. Spiritual battles will be won. His kingdom will burst with souls and his name will be glorified. That is the perfect and best way to start off this new year. That is a life worth living. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. How you called out this church in Laodicea and you're calling us out today. Lord, I pray that we will leave behind any self-centeredness, any self-reliance, anything that we know that we're holding on to in our lives that we know isn't pleasing to you. Any other time that we just spend on ourselves, and, Lord, that we would invite you to spend all this more time with us. When we would invite the power and strength of the Holy Spirit to break chains and open our eyes and fill us with the eternal, never-ending power of God. Let us see your power be unleashed in our lives and in our families' lives and in the life of our church as we release more and more of ourselves up to your Holy Spirit's transformation. And let us walk into this new year with power, with courage, with boldness, and with hope. You are our anchor. 
I pray all these things in Jesus' name.